Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So just to give you all a basic rundown, we're, we are going to look at four, so again, four verses from the Megillah, um, sort of delve into what kind of questions might arise when you read those verses, when you read those psukim, and hopefully we'll have some midrashim that will answer some of those questions. So the first verse that I wanted to look at was chapter 1, verse 12. Um, could I have a volunteer to read it, please? Roshmuli, please. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command conveyed by the eunuchs. Did you pronounce that word again? Eunuchs. Eunuchs. Yes. The king was greatly incensed and his, and his fury burned within him. Perfect. So already looking at this verse, what are some questions that you read and you go, that's interesting. Why did that happen? Or I don't understand why they use that word or double language, things along those lines, sort of looking at it from a very Talmudic perspective. Do we have any ideas? Well, it's two, it's two forms of rage seems repetitious. Perfect. Amazing, right? So we have, the king was greatly incensed, and his fury burned within him. So double language of, of fury, of rage. That's already something interesting that the rabbis certainly pick up on. Anything else? There's one glaring one glaring question that is not touched on at all in in the in the literal reading of the megillah well, this isn't really a question per se but as a woman i always also have viewed queen vashti as a hero mm. heroine she refused so you know, the she refused to you know, dance in front of the king and his drunk friends, mm -hmm. and you know. Um, so, so the question that I'm looking for is within why, that comment. Look, you know, why did she refuse? Why did she refuse? Mm -hmm. We're not told in the at all. We're told that the king wanted Queen Vashti to come before him to to show her beauty. You know, but aside from that, we're not really told why Queen Vashti would said no. You know, and you have to understand that, like. It's like a really big deal to say no to the king, you know? So it had to be a really big reason for why Queen Vashti did not come before the king. That's like the question. And presumably this is not the first time this has happened. Like it's been, probably been requested before. Oh, correct, exactly. This was not a strange request in ancient times for the king to come and, you know, um, and ask the queen come you know dance it's not great obviously uh but yeah obviously yeah this is definitely not the first time that the king would say to you know <laughs> queen vashti uh or that any king would say to his queen come and dance before me in well it doesn't even say dance in the shot just says come before me in your crown so i can show off how pretty you are right that is the main question, and the commentators have a lot of different uh, opinions on that, but I wanted to look, unless we have any other questions that arise from this pasuk, this pasuk is the least question-heavy of the of the psukim that we're going to look at, but I thought we could look at um, one commentary, this isn't even really a commentary because it's the Talmud, that talks about 
why Queen Vashti refused to come. Would anyone why like to the, read? Why is it the eunuchs who convey the message? Why is it the eunuchs yeah. who conveys the message? Um, I mean, my first, um, my first uh, thought process is that the eunuchs were the guards of the queen's palace. Um, so seemingly, maybe King Ahasuerus sent someone to tell Queen Vashti, and you would send, uh, you would send the eunuchs. Uh, especially well, why is it even relevant why he cares so and to say he commanded her he commanded her well evidently it was important that uh perhaps it was important that the king himself did not come and command her uh but that it was sent via via it was an indirect message you know it was it was certainly beneath the king to go and tell queen vashti himself mm -hmm. um but no but that's a great question so shall we look at shall we look at masakas megillah the tractate of megillah uh, that tells us, gives a little insight as to why Vashti did not come. Would anyone like to read? <clears throat> the verse states, but the queen Vashti refused to come. The Gemara asks, since she was immodest, as the master said above, the two of them had sinful intentions. What is the reason that she did not come? Perfect. I'm just going to stop you right there. All right. The Gemara even adds to this by saying, it wasn't that Vashti had a problem with dancing, you know, naked before the king she was the 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 term that the gemara uses is is, is pritsta which is which is even more than a modest it's it's licentious it's like very you know sinful intentions so the gemara says whoa, whoa 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 it's not even that like we can you know use the answer of like well that she was like embarrassed and she didn't want no she was totally fine with that so if she was fine with that then what was the reason that queen Vashti did not come before the king and the Gemara answers what Rabbi Yossi Barchanina says. Rabbi, would you like to continue? This teaches that she broke out in leprosy, and therefore she was embarrassed to expose herself publicly. An alternative huh. reason for her embarrassment was taught in a brighta. Mm -hmm. The angel Gabriel came and fashioned her tail. <laughs> Perfect. So this teaches that she broke out in leprosy or is taught in a Brita. A Brita was uh, a Mishnaic text that did not make it into the final uh, compiled Mishnah, but is still, you know, a very relevant uh, text from the Mishnaic times that is that is sometimes brought up in the Talmud. Uh, that the angel Gabriel came, one of the four archangels, uh, arc one of the four archangels came and fashioned her a tail. So evidently this was a very big reason for Vashti not to want to come before the king. Um, a lot of other commentaries, you know, Vashti is a very interesting character because as Susan said, there is, especially in more modern times, this idea of like Vashti was able to say no to the king, which is, you know, great. But we're also told in a lot of commentaries that Vashti was actually a very wicked woman who was descended from Chaldean kings who forced uh, Jewish women to be her slaves uh, and naked and made them work on Shabbat. So there is like this kind of, you know, dichot there is this kind of like dichotomy of Queen Vashti of like being like, yes, you know, great for you, Queen Vashti, like feminist icon was able to say no. And also is like this very like, you know, wicked woman. So that is, so it, it is very, it is very interesting. But the point being is that this is our first look at looking at the text of Esther, of, of Megillus Esther with this kind of Talmudic uh, lens. So let's go on to the next verse. So this is chapter two, verse five. Would anyone care to read? 
Roshmuli has read a lot. But if anyone else, you're doing a great job, Roshmuli, and I appreciate that you're reading. But if anyone else would like to, it would be greatly appreciated. In the fortress, Shushan lived a Jew by the name of Mordecai, son of Jair and son of Shimei, son of Kish and Benjamin. Okay, perfect. Okay, and I am going to um, kind of read this also in the Hebrew because a big question arises from this Pasuk, but really only makes sense if you read it in Hebrew. Ish Yehudi. So it's, it could be read as a Jewish man. Uh, be well. Gary, be well. Have a oh, wonderful day. Have some math. That's all right. That's okay. So we're told an Ish Yehudi, a, a, a Yehudi man. Now we know Yehudi today as a Jewish man, right? A Jew. But back then, um, this is, except for maybe in Sefer Yirmiyahu, but I think then it's also used to refer to a Judean. This is probably the first time that we have the word Yehudi used to refer to uh, someone as a Jew, as opposed to someone from the tribe of Judah. So there is an important reason why I'm bracketing that, right? Does anyone suggest he's the first Jew? And we're talking about Abraham as the first Jew, Jew mm -hmm. as in like a new category. So certainly the commentators talk about, they ask this question, why was he given this, de this designation of Jew? And now I'm going to spoil the end, right? The reason there's a big question here, I'm going to tell you the question, which is actually not the question that we're going to be looking at, is we're told at the end of the Pasuk, of the verse, he was Ish Yemini, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. So if you look at as if you look at it from uh, you know someone who was living in the year 586 BCE, you would say, so what was he? Was he from the tribe of Judah? Or was he from the tribe of Benjamin? As opposed to reading it nowadays, where you're like, he was a Jew who was from, from the tribe of Benjamin. If you really look at it, was it saying is he's a man from the tribe of Judah from the tribe of Benjamin? So which one was it? Um, so there is this. Uh, there are a lot of commentaries that explain like why he was given the 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 term Jew, you know? Certainly he was not the first person to follow what we know as the Jewish faith, but there is a lot of, there is a lot of commentary that talks about why he was given the term, the, the name Jew. Um, some have to do with the fact that um, he was uh, Yahid, uh, he, um, he was, uh, he was unique in his, uh, in his ability to stand up to, to Haman. Uh, and sometimes the, the letters hey and Chet can be interchangeable. Um, some claim it has to do with the term Hodaya, thankfulness, uh, which is where the name Judah comes from in the beginning. But the point being is that there is a lot of commentary that talks about why Mordechai was given this, this term. So certainly that is one of the big questions of the Pasuk, which is, why was he called an Ish Yehudi if he was from the tribe of Benjamin? Another, um, what I would consider kind of lamer commentary, uh, is that he was descended from the tribe of Benjamin through his father, but he was descended from the tribe of Judah through his mother, which is like kind of like, I don't know, kind of lame. Uh, you know, like, okay, yeah, I could have come up with that too. Um, but yeah, so that's one of the big questions, right? But it says, so, but let's read it as Jew for now, because we already talked about that. In the in Shushan, the capital, Shushan the fortress, uh, there lived a Jewish man whose name was Mordechai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimi, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. So what is a big question here? Aside from he was uh, 
he was seemingly from the tribe of Judah and also from the tribe of Benjamin. Why was everybody? Why was everyone? Perfect, right? Yeah, okay, maybe you have your father's name, okay? And then maybe what tribe you're from. So maybe it would have made sense to be right? That would have made sense, you know? Or maybe even without the Ishiamini. Even without the Ben Yair. What was the need to have all of this ancestry, right? Is it to show respect of lineage? So perhaps, right? So what do you mean by that? So in, in the indigenous tribes, you usually say what tribe you're from and who your parents are mm -hmm. to show kind of like the respect of, of your ancestors. And like they typically have like back then it was like a caste system. So you would say like, um, my father is this person of this tribe of this generation to show like who you are and the respects of like the, the power rankings of the tribe. So if you, if, if I can just ask a little more, what do you mean specific, like explicitly by respect? Like, was it for Mordechai to show respect or mm -hmm. was it, you know, like I respect my father Yair and his father Shemi and his father Kish? Correct. So no, so that's a, that's a really good point, right? It could be that um, it was just show respect of lineage, right? But the rabbis actually ask that question. So since you asked that question, we're going to go straight into the commentary because, and uh, Eddie, would you mind reading it actually? Because uh, you asked the question, the verse that initially describes Mordechai states. There was a certain Jew in Shishan, the castle, whose name was Mordechai, the son of Jair, and the son of Shimei, and the son of Kish, uh, Benjamin. Um, the Gemara asks, what is it conveying in the verse by saying that the names of Mordechai's ancestor? If the verse, in fact, comes to trace his ancestry, it should continue tracing his lineage back all the way to Benjamin, the founder of his tribe. Perfect. Stop, right? So the rabbis ask, if it was to convey lineage, right, should have gone all the way back to Benjamin, right? Mm -hmm. You want to you know, say, like, uh, and we actually have this in the book of Ruth, where uh, we're told all about King David's lineage, right? All the way back to uh, all the way. Well, actually, I don't know if it goes all the way to Yehuda, but certainly to uh, to Judah's son, uh, Peretz, right? Mm. Certainly to, uh, to Judah's son, Peretz, uh, and his son, and his son, and his son, and his son, all the way to Boaz, whose son was Ovid, whose son was Ishai, whose son was David. So evidently, that is not a strange thing to happen in Megillahs because it's happened before. So the Megillah, the rabbis asked a great question, which is, if it was to show ancestry, all the way back to Benjamin. That's not an insane concept to have, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how does the Gemara answer? Rather, what is different? Um, rather, what is different about the names that they deserve special mention. The Gemara answers, the sage taught the following, um, Barit. All of them are names in which Mordecai was called. He was called the son of Jair because he was the son of the enlightened in the eyes of all the Jewish people with his prayers. The son of Shimei, because he was the son of whom God hears in his prayers. The son of Kish, because he knocked on the gates of mercy and they opened to him. Perfect. So these names are not meant to, according to the Gemara, these names are not meant to be his father's names, but rather they are designations that Mordechai himself had based on the kind of person that he was. He was called a Ben Yair, a son who enlightened the eyes of all the Jewish people with his prayers. He was the, a, a son of Shimi, 
because he was the son whom God heard, Shema, his prayers. These are all the same roots. And he was called the son of Kish because he knocked, he Kish, on the gates of mercy, and they were open to him. So these names were not, according to Mara, his father's names, but rather they were um, titles that Mordechai himself had because of his personality, because of his characteristics, and because of the actions that he did. All right, so we have two more verses to go through, if that is all right with y'all. Uh, but any questions before we continue? <laughs> so who would like to read chapter three? Uh, chapter three, verse 11. This is a really good one. Susan, would you like to go? Please. Sure. And the king said, the money and the people are yours to do with as you see fit. Okay, perfect. So what questions arise? This is in chapter three, after Haman comes to King Ahasuerus and says, there is this group of people in your nation that are the worst, and I hate them. Uh, and, you know, you really shouldn't have to deal with these people because, you know, you're the king, and I don't like them very much, and neither should you. Uh, so here is 10,000 talents of silver, which I should tell you, I did the math once, is not a small amount of money. It is maybe, like, I think around $700 million. I did the math oh. um, a while ago. Uh, I'll, ch I'll check my math, but I'm pretty sure it's around that, that, that amount of money. It's not a small amount of money. So Haman is saying, here's $700 million. Um, let me kill the Jews, right? And King Ahasuerus says, the money and the people are yours to do with as you see fit. Yeah, keep the money um, and do whatever you want, right? So what are some questions that could arise from this pasuk? There's one glaring one, and there's a couple, there's a couple others, which are also pretty good. And one hint is that it has something to do with Ahasuerus' personality. That he's so willing to just be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You said it, done. 100%. It. Okay. And, and maybe add something a little more to that, right? He's so willing. And not only is he willing for Haman to... He's doing it for free. Right, he's doing it for free. King Ahasuerus is not someone who is a stranger to liking money, as we can tell by his lavish party in the, in the, in the beginning of of the of the Megillah, right? And here he is turning down $700 million worth of silver and saying, yeah, you can keep the money. I don't, I don't need this money that you so willingly offered me, you know, keep the money and yeah, do with the people as you see fit. That's a perfect, perfect. But is there anything else? There's one more that we're not going to touch on, but I thought was a really good, a really good question. Um, a question for me that came up, um, as you see fit kind of makes me think something similar had happened before and the king approved of what he saw was fit. So it's interesting. So I was thinking about that. I never thought about it in that way. The rabbis asked though, why did King Ahasuerus say, as you see fit? What it was the last book, it's Obeynecha. As it seems fit in your eyes, right? Why doesn't you say, keep the money and yeah, destroy the nation, um, you know, or, and kill them, you know, or, do what you said. Why does he say, as you see fit? The rabbi's answer is <laughs> plausible deniability. King Ahasuerus uh, knew uh, that um, the, the God of the Jewish people took revenge on those that uh, hurt the Jewish people, and he wanted to maintain some sort of plausible deniability. Um, and this, uh, this commentary is really to show that that we're going to touch on is that King Ahasuerus was really this uh, wicked, wicked man. And he, uh, the next two commentaries that we're going to look at are going to talk about that. 
Uh, the King Ahasuerus was really this wicked man, uh, especially because in kids' stories of the of Purim, uh, oftentimes King Ahasuerus is kind of looked at as like this bumbling fool, you know, which is really not the case. Ahasuerus was really a, a wicked man. Um, and the commentary that we're going to read now is going to touch on this, which is also from Pactate Megillah, from the Talmud, right? So any any reader. I will. I will promise you that I will read the last commentary. There was. Uh, there were. Uh, there was uh, when when Trump won. There was a whole conversation. Is he Haman or is he Achish? He's uh, is he Is he like this fool or is he like a wicked guy? Mm -hmm. But uh, and what's interesting is <laughs> what's interesting is that the last commentary that we're going to look at is actually going to touch on that. Uh, okay. So hmm. good point. Um, so this commentary is one of the more famous commentaries on uh, on Megillus Esther. Um, at least I think it is. Uh, so, would anyone like to read? Oh, I'm Marissa, and I would love to read. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to if you don't want to. I like that I'm pronouncing the king's name. That's all right. Like it's it's Akashverosh or Akashwiris. Um, you could also say uh, the king guy. Yeah. <laughs> the actions of Akashverosh and Haman can be understood with a parable. To what may they be compared? The two individuals, one of whom had a mound in the middle of his field and the other of whom had a ditch in the middle of his field, each one suffering from his own predicament. <clears throat> the owner of the ditch, noticing the other's mound of dirt, said to himself, who will give me this mound of dirt suitable for filling in my ditch? I would even be willing to pay for it with money. And the owner of the mound, noticing the other's ditch, said to himself, who will give me this ditch for money so that I may use it to remove <laughs> the mound of earth from my property? At a later point one day, they happened to have met one another. The owner of the ditch said to the owner of the mound, sell me your mound so I can fill in my ditch. The mound's owner, anxious to rid himself of the excess dirt on his property, said to him, take it for free, if only you had done so sooner. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the king himself wanted to destroy the Jews as he was delighted that Haman had similar aspirations and was willing to do the job for him. He demanded no money from him. Yeah, so Ahasuerus himself wanted to destroy the Jews. He was the man with the mound, right? And the owner of the ditch was Haman, who came and said, sell me your mound. Sell me the Jews of your kingdom so that I can kill them. And Akashvera says, take them. I also don't like them. What seems difficult about that is that as soon as Esther is like, raises her voice of a, being a problem, he immediately is with her. Correct. As if he didn't care about the Jews at all, one way or the other. So, no, so that's, that's, a, that's, a, very good, that's a very good point. And that kind of has to do with the plausible deniability uh -huh, aspect, uh -huh, yeah, you know, right. that this was not uh, this was not a king who was really all in in terms of in terms of that. Mm -hmm. um, we also know, according to commentary, that there were lots of I mean, Hashem's name famously does not appear in Megillus Esther uh, to really kind of emphasize this fact that Hashem was kind of like behind the scenes in the Megillah. And the commentary really touches on a lot of points in the Megillah where it's very obvious that Hashem really had a hand in that. You know, in chapter five, we're told that um, King Ahasuerus uh, extended his golden scepter to uh, Queen Esther to show that she had found favor in his eyes and that he wasn't going to kill her for coming to him without permission. And the commentary tells us that when Ahasuerus saw Queen Esther, that he wanted to kill her for coming in front of him and that uh, God made it so that she found favor in his eyes and like he didn't do that. You know, so there is there is a like what to say about that that there was kind of 
Hashem had a hand in it. But also, again, it's the plausible deniability aspect. And again, that is what we're going to get to in the final uh, parish that we're going to talk about. It's also like um, he says, oh, yes, let's tell Haman he's so bad. But just so you know, it can't be reversed. Like, do what you want to do. But like, just so you know, like... It's like, like I wish I could help you, but I can't, you know, like, it's like, yeah, I'm the king, and uh, basically, I can do whatever I want, but, like, there's, like, a little hole here where you can't, like, reverse it's, like, kind of, like, there's a, it's called the no-takesies-backsies clause, and I can't really do anything about it, even though I make up all the rules, because I'm the king, uh, you know, but, no, that's a fantastic point, um, but, yeah, so, no, but certainly, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's it's a great point that you know King Ahasuerus kind of you know so to speak uh, switches sides, um, and uh, yeah, it is uh, part of it is that plausible deniability aspect of not wanting to uh, you know, it's kind of like playing both teams uh, for when you see which team is winning and then you go with the team that's winning, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like that. Um, so yeah, he's really the worst. Uh, <laughs> So now we're going to get to the final verse, which actually has, I think, one of like the biggest like what's going on here kind of moments, which is uh, chapter seven, verse six. I will read the uh, I will read the commentary uh, for this one because uh, especially because there is no English translation for it. Um, so in chapter seven, verse six, we have this verse. We are at Queen Esther's uh, feast. It's her King Ahasuerus and Haman. And Queen Esther asks uh, King Ahasuerus, hey, can I have uh, my nation? Pretty please, don't kill me. And King Ahasuerus is like, who, you know, who would do such a thing, right? This guy, right? <laughs> he said, it's like, who would do such a thing, right? So Esther says, Vatomer Esther, Queen Esther replied, Ish tsar ve'oyev, the adversary and enemy. Haman harahazeh, is this evil Haman? And Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen. So what are some questions that arise here in this pasuk? Why does it call her queen at the end? Mm. Mm. And Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen. And what's interesting is that there is a lot of commentaries that talk about that when Megillah says Hamelech, but is not followed by Ahasuerus, it's it's meant to have a double meaning that it's talking both about King Ahasuerus and the king meaning Hashem. So that is a very good point. Why does it say and not why just It's a great question. The answer to which I do not have, but phenomenal question. Why do we need two words for them, Sar and Oyev? Why Sar and Oyev? And furthermore, and what? Right, or let me let me phrase it in a different way. Why does it need to say Ish Sar Oyev and Haman Hara Hazeh? It could either be or Haman So why and Haman Right? Why do we need both of those? Anything else? That is fine. I I am going to I'm going to end up with what I think is like a super cool commentary. So this is the Orchadash, which was the Maharal's commentary on uh, Megillus Esther. The Maharal was Rabbi Yehuda Lo of Prague, who uh, famously did not create a golem. Uh, I don't know if you guys know the story of the golem, but um, as as much as I love the story of the golem and as much as I grew up hearing that Rabbi Udalo of Prague made a golem, he actually did not. Um, 
as uh, Rabbi uh, Isas Harkat's uh, famously, famously says to me, I like to, he's a rabbi from my rabbinical school, um, and I like to push his buttons all the time by telling him about how Rabbi Hudalo made a golem, but he did not actually. Um, but what he did do is write a lot of famous uh, commentary. Uh, one is the Gur Arya, which was his commentary on uh, on the Torah. And here we have the Or Kadash, which was his commentary on the Megillah. So he says as follows. But in the Gemara, Megillah Tetzayin Amud Aleph, in the, in the tractate of Megillah, page 16a, Amrukach. It says as follows. Esther says, Ish tsar ve'oyev haman harazeh. Melamed sheita Esther mechavei yada kalpei achashverosh uva malach v'satar yada kalpei haman adkan. It teaches us that Esther pointed her finger towards achashverosh when she said, Ish tsar ve'oyev. When King Achashverosh said, Who was it who did this? That sold your 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 people to be killed. When she said she pointed to Achashverosh, and an angel came and moved her finger towards Haman. Full stop. That's what the Gemara says. So then the Maharal adds, And this is difficult, right? Why did why did why did the angel need to come and move Esther's hand? She did say Haman hara hazeh. Evidently, the, the seeming, the, the, the point was, is that um, the reason the angel moved Esther's hand was because if she had accused the king of basically being the evil guy, that would not have gone well for her, even though that was true, right? So what was the need to move her hand if she said Haman hara hazeh, right? It seems that this is the perush. This is the explanation. Because the king asked, who, who was this that did uh, that sold your people to be killed? Because if Esther had just said Haman hara and had not pointed towards Achashverosh, Esther would have been saying a lie. Because it wasn't just Haman. It was Achashverosh too. And it's written in um, in the book of Psalms. One who speaks lies will not uh, bring uh, salvation, so to speak, will not uh, triumph. Because what could Haman have done if Achashverosh had not stole the Jewish people and given them in the hands of Haman? And from words of lies, from lies, the redemption will not come. As it says in the book of Psalms, uh, one who says lies will not, uh, will not triumph. Therefore, Esther said, the adversary. Therefore, Esther said the adversary and pointed towards Achashverosh because the adversary is he who she pointed towards as he was the seller, the one who sold the Jewish people to Haman. Therefore, 
And he then said, the enemy, the evil Haman, to say, as if to say, both of them did this, Achashverosh and Haman Hara, and the evil Haman. Uh, by both of their hands, this came to pass. And so that way, Esther would not come to the hands of danger. She would not put herself in a dangerous situation when she said, and pointed towards Akashverosh, when she said, the adversary, and pointed to Akashverosh, and therefore the angel came and moved her hand towards Haman. And there is no explanation of what is written that came out of uh, this, right? This evil Haman that came out of Esther's mouth. Just that what she pointed towards Haman is like the word Zeh. Because one who is a Heresh, which is known as a, a deaf mute in the time of the Talmud or in the commentaries, that is not able to speak, but is able to hint, so to speak, with their hands, this is thought to be as, you know, having spoken the word. And therefore, it's written, Haman Hara Hazeh. So, Kach Lefaresh. So, essentially, the two questions that are answered here is why was it necessary to have both Ish Sarbeyev and Haman Harazet? And the question that the Maharal answers at the end that is not asked in the beginning is why does it need to say Hazet? It could just be Ish Sarbeyev Haman Hara. Why does it need to say this Haman Hara? And it explains that when someone points, it's as if they're saying, you know, this one, right? This one. So, so evidently, according to the Maharal, Queen Esther did not actually say, she said, pointing towards Akashverosh, who's, and then her hand was then moved towards Haman. And she said, and her hand essentially said, this Haman Hara. So um, these are just some interesting commentaries that I thought answered some pretty good questions about the Megillah. Um, and uh, I guess we have a little bit of time. If you guys have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Mm -hmm. Right, that it talks about like the power of the point. The power of the point, yeah, 100 percent 100%. And and it was and it was important that that they sort of touch on this fact that Queen Esther, you know, really emphasizes the fact that you know Ahasuerus really had a, a pivotal moment to play. And that's sort of kind of what we were talking about, uh, what you mentioned about uh Trump, which was this uh mm -hmm. um I try not to bring politics into what I do, but you know, <laughs> because you brought it up and it's a because even if you can argue that perhaps he is not Haman, certainly he enables Hamans, you know, which yeah. one can argue is is just mm -hmm. as is just as bad, you know. Um, so yeah. and certainly one cannot succeed without the other. What can a Haman do if the Achashverosh does not sell him the people? Um, and I think it was also important to note that yeah, that Esther could not tell lies in the sense that, you know, it was it was not enough to just say that Haman was the bad guy, but also Ahasuerus was the bad guy. Mm. Um, but also through Ahasuerus, uh, we were able to get some sort of Geula in that regard. Um, not a full Geula, not a full redemption, but we certainly through uh, the power of what Ahasuerus um, allowed Esther and Mordecai to do, we were able to uh, save our people. It's interesting, like political commentary on models of social change that in the in the Pesach story, 
you've got to take down the number one. Mm-hmm. Like the number one guy's got to go. You got to destroy the whole system. But over here, like you have to operate within the system to like keep intact the number one, make sure he doesn't even think he's complicit. Like like you're saying, I I think you were saying that not even making, even though he's clearly complicit, making clear that it's not him. Right. right? And that you got to take down the number two. You got to like work within mm-hmm. that system. Hundred percent. But then and then also when you think about it, because it's this whole because if Esther, if Esther had said, you know, and pointed at Achashverosh, you know, she might have been killed, right? Mm-hmm. And was she wrong to say that? Yeah. Absolutely not. Of course, he was Ishtarvoyev. But that puts the whole thing down the drain, right? right. And sure, you you're right in the moment, and Achashverosh is the bad guy, but there is also a point of like, okay, yeah, but we also have this other big looming thing that is like, you know, hanging over our heads, and the only guy who can really help us is this Ishtarvoyev, you know. And versus in the Pesach story where it's really just, you know, Hashem who, um, you know, really comes in and just, you know, uh, kicks butt, takes names, because uh, that's what Hashem can do, you know. Um, but certainly when Hashem is working behind the scenes, you also have to, you know, Kibiachal work behind the scenes, you know. And there's also like some some fascinating um, some fascinating commentary. I think it's like the most beautiful commentary in all of, it's like one of my favorite ones, which is, um, at Yitziat Mitzrayim, at the exodus from Egypt, uh, there's uh, there the whole story of Paro wanted the Jews to leave Egypt immediately. Um, and Moshe says, you know, are we going to leave like thieves in the night? No, we are going to leave in, in the midday um, where everyone can see us. And, you know, Hashem kind of adds, and let anyone who, who wants to try and stop them come and try and we'll see what happens. And this kind of, you know, there you did not need to operate within the system because... Hashem's the system, you know, and the unfortunate truth here is that, um, is that you kind of have to, have to operate it within the system. And that's one of the reasons why we don't say uh, Hallel on Purim, in addition to the fact that it's not a holiday that was mentioned in the Torah and is also uh, not a holiday that took place in the land of Israel. It is also, we are not completely free at the end of the story. Um we do not have our own uh, sovereignty at the end of the Purim story. We are still slaves to Achashverosh. In all the holidays in the Torah, the only person that we're slave, the only thing that we're slaves to is, is Hakash Baruch Hu, is Hashem. And um, I guess in Hanukkah, uh, we have we got our sovereignty from um, from the Seleucids. But in this story, sure we're saved, but we are still not our own sovereign people. Which is another uh, reason why we don't say hollow on Purim. I've always been confused by that, that not being in Israel because Pesach is not in Israel. But it's in the Torah. Uh, uh, oh, oh, you saying if it's rabbinic, if it's rabbinic. If it's in if it's oh. if it's in the Torah, hollow. Oh, okay. If it's in Israel, hollow. Um, but if it's not in Israel and it's not in the Torah, no hollow. Right. It's also like it's nice because like the Pesach story, it's like this obvious like God is here, God is speaking, God mm-hmm. is like taking us out. And here it's like more of like a modern day, like where's God? Like we're suffering, where's mm-hmm. God? And it's like God is hidden in all the like little spaces, like Hamela. You know? Right. But which is which is really important to say that even though God's which is why I love this story so much, because it really reaffirms faith in the modern era in the sense that sure, you know, faith, so to speak, was easy in the times of Pesach because you had all these uh, miracles. And yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I believe in Hashem, you know, splits the sea. Yeah, totally. But in this story, there is still an emphasis of Hashem, even though Hashem is Nistar, even though Hashem is hidden. Um, 
so to speak, that Hashem is not any more or less present in this story than he was in the Pesach story. It was just different. And in today's day and age, yeah, things are more similar to Purim than it is to Pesach, but Hashem is still there, you know, hidden, but still there. There's been this conversation in the Russian-Ukrainian war of like, how do we have Putin save face? Like, how do we have him save face to feel like, you know, he, yeah, he's won, he's won, and, you know, we can let him go because shaming the king only brings more rage. Mm -hmm. But if you let him save face and, yeah, either blame someone else or, you know, claim the victory. Right. He's also... It's, it's a different way. I mean, it's a different way to deal with evil. Yeah. Is to, like, is, you know, to appease them. Right. And, and East, right. He's still an East Star Boyev. And sure, by calling him an East Star Boyev, you're not. Uh... Okay. Oh, the time. Oh, yeah. oh the time. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to end yeah. now. Um, it's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, Putin certainly an, an East Star Boyev. But like you said, yeah, you're not going to win by calling him an East Star Boyev because it's it's the difference between, you know, saying what's right and saying what it takes to sort of keep the peace and 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 really win you know very nice thank you for thank you for learning with me thanks for joining us for this episode of the valley bait midrash podcast remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs learning opportunities and more ways to stay connected if you enjoyed learning with us today support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org/donate Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.